Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. This series of 20 Not Something is sponsored by Swirls and Curls your go-to luxury baked goods brand. Any of you who know me well will understand my infatuation with cakes and cookies. But what's even more impressive is when a brand can deliver top quality first-class products which still taste fresh and delicious with a warm home-baked touch. Swirls and Curls is a small business run by the lovely Kirsty, and her beautifully decorated cakes and sugar cookies are the perfect gift for a partner, friend, family member or for just treating yourself. They are incredible value for money, look fantastic and taste even better. Head over to Swirls and Curls on Instagram to feast your eyes and stomachs on their wide range of products and go and spoil yourselves and your loved ones this month with some truly tasty treats. Today I am joined by Generation UK's Chief Operating Officer, Lewis Jenkins. Lewis's 20s were largely shaped by his early travelling experiences. After leaving school, he saved up money working a kitchen porter job before taking six months to go travelling. Through Southeast Asia, the Middle East and down to Australia, back through Indonesia and India, he partied hard, was hospitalised twice, got into a nasty motorbike accident and fell hard in love as well. Upon returning to the UK, almost in one piece, Lewis was unrecognisable from the boy he'd left as. From that moment, Lewis's 20s became centred around adventure and travel in every way possible. From studying a year abroad in California to an internship abroad in New York. Thinking he wanted to work in finance, he worked hard in the harsh corporate climate of Wall Street, but quickly realised that cities are cruel when you're poor. New York chewed him up and spat him out, and Lewis hit age 24, totally broke as the country plummeted into a recession. The following months were tough. Back in London, desperately hustling and completing continuous applications, trying to get some form of work while his bank account slowly drained. Just as Lewis hit breaking point, surviving off a diet of pot noodles and beans, a recruiter decided to take a chance on him. Two weeks later, Lewis was in a five-star hotel in Moscow, learning how to be a trainer at a political risk consultancy. In the following five years, he worked in China, Holland, Germany, LA, Washington, Dubai, Singapore and Japan – or you could say, got everything he ever wanted in the form of a high-flying job and five-star travel. However, his newfound, hectic, stressful and idealistic lifestyle left Lewis suffering from serious burnout and increased physical and mental struggles. He found himself looking around at the directors and senior consultants in his industry. Did they seem happy? The answer for the vast majority seemed to be no. By 29, Lewis had ticked a lot of boxes in terms of hot girlfriends, a prestigious master's degree, five-star travel and the trappings of success, but he wasn't happy. He decided to quit his job, much to his boss's disapproval, and on his 30th birthday, hopped on the cheapest one-way flight he could find to Australia, with nothing but a business plan and an idea. In his words, I felt nervous and determined, and sad and ambitious, but most importantly, I felt so free. Lewis, welcome to 20 Not Something. Thank you kindly. Thanks for having me. No worries. I love that note you sent me. It honestly felt like a book. I really hope you write an autobiography one day. Uh, I'd probably get too much trouble if I did, to be honest. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no worries. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it was nice to reminisce, actually. It was nice to kind of actually, it's rarely that you kind of take stock and think, oh, yeah, I did a decade and it was called the 20s and this is what happened. It was nice to do that. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, 
I'll start off by asking you the same question I ask everyone. And that is when you were looking into your 20s decade, can you remember what the one thing you wanted most was? Yeah, I I, I did uh, like a lot of kind of middle class people uh, at that time. I did a gap year and that kind of, (laughs) as you mentioned, the travel bit at the beginning and working, making the money, then going traveling. That kind mm-hmm. of just just showed me that like there was a lot more to life than London, and that um, I would grow much quicker as a person if I travelled a lot. So it's mainly travel. Um, to begin with, it started with like trying to be happy, um, but I quickly realised that that is a kind of elusive and impossible goal, basically, and it's better to just go after excitement at the beginning. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. I just tried to be excited, and 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 travel was exciting to me at that time. So. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much my objective. And then, yeah, in doing that exercise, I realized that pretty much my entire career was built around just, at the beginning, was built around just like travel, just like an excuse mm. to go to places and see stuff and get paid for it. That was, they seemed like a good deal to me. <laughs> Why did you um, come back from those six months? Um, if- I came back because I'd run out of money. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, after because after, I'd been a porter, saved up loads of money, worked all the hours God sent, and then just basically ran out of dough, was completely broke. And I had been in, a, in a, like a motorbike accident and a couple of other things and just did six months was enough. You know, I, I, I felt, it yeah. felt like it was time. And I thought I should probably go to university, which I then did. Um, mm. Last minute, got in, got in the back door and went to King's in London because a friend was going there. Oh, nice. and I hadn't planned anything, <laughs> so that was that. Just jumped in. Yeah. Love it. Um, you said in your notes to me that when you look back on your early 20s especially that you were a little bit promiscuous and maybe a bit shallow which is actually an incredibly honest reflection um what yeah, I'm still pretty shallow uh, on the whole <laughs> um I- I'm less promiscuous uh much less promiscuous because I live with my partner um <laughs> and yeah yeah it was it's a time in my life you know I don't regret it I, but you know I think I would encourage people to do that as long as you're careful. Uh, I think mm. it's a good way to, it's good to go broad in your 20s and then like focus in on your 30s and be a bit more um, specialist in your 30s as you get to know mm. yourself a bit better. And that like that's true of a career and true of, I think, relationships as well. I think a lot of my friends kind of, kind of uh, got married very young or had kids very young. And then they usually would have some kind of an unraveling uh, towards kind of uh, like now or uh, mm-hmm. earlier so for me it was better to just I knew I knew myself well enough to say actually it's better to just um just try different things and be more open to different experiences at the beginning and then as I kind of get too old and too ugly then you know mm-hmm. in. <laughs> yeah how how did you find dating in your 20s because I think everyone has a very different experience of it back in my day like I'm 38 now back in my day um that you it wasn't it like tinder didn't exist right so <laughs> it was they were like online dating things but they added like a lot more of stigma of attached to them um mm. and I I worked as a I was a tour guide for a bit in the UK and spent a lot of time welcoming coaches of like European and like people who did it in English language in those days were like tended to be from different countries coached full of girls so I just would meet like <laughs> girls of my age and, and I'd, I'd be the only dude they knew so it was pretty easy you know easy. <laughs> had to pick a bunch <laughs> uh, yeah a little bit without sounding like too much of um am I allowed to swear on this by the way yeah yeah without sounding like too much of a swear I uh <laughs> I, I was, yeah, and I did that for 10 years with my best mate um, and we both 
And then by the end, we were like, it was a tour guide job and I wore a funny T-shirt. I was one of those dickheads with a mic at the front of a coach. <laughs> yeah. right? And it was like, it wasn't quite a holiday rep, but it was like that. But yeah, it meant I said saw Europe as well because I had lots of girlfriends and then I'd go and visit them in like Timbuktu or wherever they're from, you know. Love um, that, love that. So that was, yeah, it was a good time. And like, it also, I learned quite a lot. So I learned a bit of Spanish, I learned a bit of French because I was just like staying in these places afterwards and at the end of summer. Mm. Um, and I, you know, appreciated a lot about different cultures that way. So it was kind of a, a good way to learn languages and understand cultures rather than just being a tourist, you know? Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, so fast forwarding then slightly to New York, um, you're obviously interning on Wall Street as the financial crash hit right right and it was like yeah I, I can't, how how was that I can't even imagine like that yeah. what that felt like yeah it was it was very it was it was not glamorous at all um so mm. I was like on the bottom rung uh I was an intern um I wasn't being paid uh and yeah it was the opposite of the Jordan Belfort experience <laughs> I'd lived in America before so I did American studies a year abroad I lived in California for a year prior so I kind of fell in love with America. I really liked American literature and politics and, and just was fascinated by the place. So I wanted to just be there. Um, I also had a girlfriend at that time who was from Hawaii and she'd moved to New York. So it all made sense. It came together. I ended up on Wall Street. And within a couple of weeks, I was like, I don't want to ever want to work in finance again. Like this is the, mm. the, the, the culture and the way that, particularly as it unraveled the financial crisis. And when you're in the eye of the storm, it was weird because there were people pretending keeping the wheels turning even though they knew that it was all falling down and so you had this kind of sense of denial and bad faith uh John Paul Sartre calls it bad faith that idea that you kind of keep even though you know what you're doing I'm going to butcher this but even though you you know like what you're doing is wrong or not accurate or dishonest you just keep doing it anyway Mm. um and I felt that like was rife there during that time and no one was being frank about what was happening um Mm. And yeah, I remember one day I was sitting on Wall Street with a guy who was a much older guy who was kind of a mentor to me informally. And he was, and I, and I remember sneering because there was a bloke walking out with a cardboard box of one of the big Wall Street banks. And he had his cardboard box full of stuff, full of his stuff. And he was like out on his ass for like losing his job. And he had a you know $1,000 suit on and I was kind of broke and stuff. And I was sneering like, yeah, there's one of those masters of the universe. I knew the guy and seen him in the hallways and he was always very smug and kind of over self-assured sort of thing mm-hmm. and, I, and I sneered and the guy next to me said yeah well and I was like uh, you know kind of mocking him a bit and the guy next to me said no you don't want to be mocking him because if he's if he's in the shit we all are right and and, wow. and that kind of and that was the beginning and it took another kind of five years for it to all unfold with the unemployment or the rest of it but mm. it was at the epicenter but you know I was 23 so I was just like you know, trying to turn up at three parties, there was this uh, website called My Open Bar, which gave you like, which basically told you where the open bars were in town. I was so broke. I had a friend. He was like good looking and I was better at talking. Um, <laughs> and then so we used to just go out and turn up at galleries and stuff and pretend to buy art, put our best clothes on, <laughs> pretend to buy art and stuff and go to these parties. And then well, I, was just, like, I was much more busy doing that than acknowledging that uh, the, you know, the financial crisis was starting to unfold and I was a mm. of my seat. Mm, yeah. gosh so when the recession did hit you know you said that you were sort of back in the UK desperately trying to find a job and I think especially in the society we live in now there is a lot of pressure around the fact that if you don't have a job that job is almost like your sole purpose and there's an emphasis on jobs being our sole purpose of existing almost so when you don't have a job it feels really isolating 
that's my experience of being unemployed anyway. Um, yeah, and I yeah. just wondered how you, you got through that. Yeah, it's difficult, like no doubt. And particularly at this time as well, like my heart goes out to people like trying to look right now, but the charity I work for right now is trying to help people in that space. We train people, um, mm-hmm. get them work and we work with big employers trying to get them on their feet. Um, I think that like, at that time, I just, I was, it's very difficult when you're watching the money just tick down. And I knew I had like very little, like a couple of hundred quid. And it, I only had a couple of weeks rent to go, you know, and it was all very, very tight. But you just got to keep at it. You just push yourself mm. to keep, like, keep going. Um, and I just applied for everything and didn't say no to anything. And also, I think that sometimes in life, like now, my, my, I'm lucky enough that my profession is an expression of my identity, so I can bring my own self to work. But there is no gap between my internal and external realities, right? So I don't have mm. to be anywhere. I don't have to put up a front and stuff anymore. And I, you kind of have to work for the right to that, I guess. Like, it's not good enough to just follow your passion unless you're loaded already or you're remarkably good at what you're doing. Usually you have to make concessions in the early days. So I did. Um, and did jobs I didn't want to do for a long time before I was able to do that job, uh, this mm. job and, and the job that I did before, which are the first two that I'd actually kind of really, you know, it was from the heart. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I you know, it, it, at that time it was it was weird when I got on the plane. Uh, there was like 100 jobs. It was a gum tree in them days. And like it was a 100 jobs being posted a day. And by the time well, by the time I got back it was, there were no jobs. There were just no jobs being posted. And the ones that were, were recruiters who were fishing for other people who maybe knew about jobs, you know? So they posted Mm -hmm. a false job and then I'd be chatting and they're like, oh, are you applying to anything else at the moment? And I'd be like, no. And I realized what they were doing, one of them was doing. So it was just a nightmare of of a situation. But what I did was just had a morning and evening routines and nailed that. I just would work bloody hard on mm. applying for everything, but not really like scattergun. And if anyone's in this position now, like don't just apply for random jobs online, get to know people, do information interviews, use LinkedIn to stalk people and think of anything mm. you can to get in front of them, as opposed to looking for jobs and applying to them, which traditionally like is what people do is what the majority are doing. And, and from what I can see, doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. I think also when you're coming at it from a state of unemployment and almost like pure desperation, like I've been there a hundred percent. And I found that when I go to interviews in that headspace, I'm awful because they, they can tell that I'm desperate for it and no employer wants someone who is like acting in that way. So it's really hard to, cause I think confidence comes from being able to tell whether you're right for a job and you go in there with that mindset. Whereas like in that desperate state it's really hard to do that right absolutely and I think um if you look at like when you like it needs to be more like a date when you're just mm. each other out and treat it much more like a date and I, I think the same you know there are parallels with like I'm, the more you humanize things and make it about relationships rather than like processes in in this mm. interview space the more you're able to like get your get your point across and bring up bring out the real you which to then shine in an interview um but to begin with you've got to do your bloody homework you know you've got to make sure mm-hmm. that you know everything about them as as you would if you could on a date you know if you really knew you had to impress this person you make sure that you knew mm-hmm. who their friends are and what their favorite color was and all that <laughs> so then when you were you, you got that chance from that cr- recruiter and two weeks later you're in this 
I mean, high flying job at a five star hotel in in Moscow. Um, what were those sort of five years like in terms of the work pressure, um, the social benefits? Like, yeah, it, it was a, it, like don't get me wrong, it was a wonderful experience, and like back to what we spoke about at the beginning, it was a, an excuse to travel the world and get paid mm. for it. So I was like, sweet, um, that's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, like now I deliver a lot of training sessions and deliver, do quite a bit of public speaking and stuff. And it was good in terms of, it was full on. I was delivering training sessions to people I'd never met before, just turning up cold, training them in a computer system that basically didn't work at the mm. beginning. And so, and these guys were like big hitters. They were like kidnap negotiators, uh, hostage negotiators and like kidnap consultants, uh, corporate investigators in Russia, um, ex-CIA in, in Washington DC wow. like there, it was a, it was a political risk consultancy so you, and, and security risk so you had a lot of kind of ex-military who didn't take any shit and then there was this like 20 something you know upstart who didn't really know what he was doing but had been given their script and was trying to deliver it and I got I got bludgeoned a lot of time you know it was it was pretty harsh a lot of the time they were like you know, don't try and bore your shit that are there and called me on stuff but over time, I got better and better at it, and I like, understood the technology a lot better, and then learned, understood what you know. And it's the same as you learn in business as well. I've like started off a couple of companies, and like I had one relative success and one relative failure. Um, and if you understand the customer and can speak their language and use their voice, then you'll do a lot better. And that's where I learned that bit too. It's just like really, you've got to come from a position of empathy if you're trying to teach someone something or sell them something. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then you know they're not going to be interested. Mm. did you ever have a sense in your 20s that you had to have your shit together like did you feel that pressure <laughs> yeah I still do man um <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think that you, you you're constant and it's the thing with life isn't it? you're constantly waiting and only in the last couple of years have I let that go this sense that you will arrive at some point this sense mm. that there is something to be achieved that there is something to attain and then it will click into place and I've watched it like with my friends and my good self where I'm like, I'm going to get married. That will tick a box. And within six weeks, I was divorced. It was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to buy this house. That'll do it. And it's like, I'm, you know, you're dissatisfied within weeks. And so you go through life with this kind of checklist of shit. I just need to be fixed because I'm not whole. And then it's somewhere along the line, you realize that no job fills that hole. No other, no other person fills that hole. No, no like sick car fills that hole as much as it might be fun. <laughs> It, you've just got to try and acknowledge that actually that hole is like a nice space for you to be in and it's all right. And you're going to die yeah. anyway. So if you piss your pants about it, like in the long run, we're all dead as Keen said, right? So it, it doesn't, you know, if you, if you get too hung up on like attainment, mm. then you end up just constantly chasing, chasing, chasing. Mm. And like the, the, the real sharp end of that is like addiction, right? Where you're just like, all I need is another fix. And I think a lot of us do that. And a lot of technology is geared towards that kind of, that kind of quick fix, like dopamine, mm. kind of, right, another one, another one, another one, like scroll, scroll. So I think I try and stay away from that. And a lot of that, a lot of my time now is spent managing that. But anyway, it's not yeah. about it's about Tony's, so Yeah. <laughs> But it is, we do live in a perfectionist culture and I am such, uh, so guilty of what you just said. Like, oh, once I get to here, I'll be happy. And once I get to do this, I'll be happy. And only now in my mid twenties, I'm sort of realizing that everything I sort of wanted five years ago, I've actually got now, but I'm not content with it at all. Right. And that's really strange. 
Yeah, the, the worst thing to happen to you, and it's the worst thing that ever happened to me, was when I got everything I wanted. So mm. I was like, by the, by the time I'd hit 30, I was kind of on the board of the directors of a multinational, which was um, uh, the intern group, which you, you did an internship in. And and I set up the Australian entity. It was a big deal. We'd scaled quickly. We'd done super well. We won awards and stuff. And it was like, had a big house. I just got married. And, and I was really like box ticking. You know, the person I married was like very posh. We got married at the Hurlingham Club. It was a big, it was a big deal. And um, within, you know, within six weeks, I found out that uh, she, she was with the next door neighbor and he was married and his missus was pregnant. So I lost my house, my dogs, my wife, um, and my home, and uh, basically my job as well, because it was in Australia and the visa was tied to that. So that's why I had to sell a company. So I lost everything in like uh, a matter of oh, like a couple of weeks. And that was before the wedding video was done, right? So it was just such a weird oh experience. God. And I was just like, and that, that was me like getting everything I wanted, you know? That was me, the, like the days before I was like, oh yeah, smug, I've nailed it. And then I realized that I, in, in trying to get everything I wanted, I'd actually become a dickhead. Like I hadn't, I didn't even like myself either. So the whole thing was just a bit of a disaster. But it was like, and now I look back and it's, that was kind of uh, five, six years ago now. And it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me because I'd just be a bit bored. And I was just like, you know what? I need to start again. I need to look long and hard. So, yeah, all of that was a bit of a shit show. But, like, that was a, is a good example in my life of, like, you can try and do all these things and can put a certain control on the world and say, I'm going to tick all these boxes. And once I've attained this, then everything else will be fine. And, in fact, for me, it was quite the opposite where I'd realised once I'd, I'd kind of lost sight of everything I, I was in order to try and become something that, in the end, I didn't want to be, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and that reminds me of... Um, this really lovely note that you you sent in in that uh, biog that you sent me um and i just want to read it out because it just it really hit me um because you said at the end of my 20s in 2013 the day i handed my master's dissertation in i got on a bus to glastonbury festival there i realized that i was still just a scared little boy trying to prove himself to people who didn't care in a system that didn't matter to me in a city i was done with i had a little cry and decided to leave everything behind which was lovely yeah. and i just thought that was so amazing and uh, what was that feeling like when you sort of decided i'm quitting my job i'm doing this i'm going well i mean part of it was i was a recreational drug user at that time um but yeah yeah like, like no doubt it was a good you know, like, and I think this is, it goes in waves as well. So you never, not, like, I have not yet reached a, a stage of enlightenment. And there's always a tension between stuff you've got to do and stuff you want to do and who you're becoming and who you were and all the rest of it. But in that context, I was being an office drone and I was being a desk jockey and I'd been doing it for years and I'd got the master's. I did a master's at Cambridge and was very, I'd been getting up at four every morning and, and studying hardcore and then commuting to work an hour and a half each way in order to work in London. And I, all of this stuff was about attainment and, and, and searching. And, then, you know, I'm pleased I did it and I learned a lot. But at that stage, I just suddenly realised, like, which, again, as I mentioned earlier, like during the, during the, the like, breakup of, of the, my marriage, the, like, it exploded on impact. It's like, are you, are you, you know, like, why are you trying to do these things? Like, mm. and you are we are all are like inside just like scared children trying to find our way and 
and then you go f- and then you you try and do things and you don't realize the deeper reasons why you're trying to do it and i think that was it for me and basically i was trying to prove myself to these people but then once i had kind of i had all the proof i needed it's difficult because I don't know how you, how can you hack that? How can you in your 20s say, actually, you don't need to worry about this stuff without going through it? And then it's only in the going through it that you, that you then realize it wasn't that important. But I don't know how you can, uh, can shortcut and hack that. I think yeah. part of it is, is spending less time asserting and trying to be and more time like accepting. And so like now I meditate and spend a lot more time reflecting and reading and considering and, and and understanding that other people, I can steal time by borrowing other people's experiences. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to do it all myself, right? So like mm-hmm. it, from philosophers to like friends to anyone, to you, like if you have something that I can then take so I don't have to do that or make that mistake, then that's so good. Yeah. And that was pretty good like that. He made a catalogue of errors, so some of them pretty nasty. But he was very frank about saying, don't make the mistakes I did. And so I try and look at that in terms of, all right, you're allowed to make mistakes all the time, but you've got to learn. And if you make the same mistakes again, that's not forgivable. Like if you just keep doing the same thing. So like, you know, I quit smoking because I'd realized that that it'd become like this thing that I just, and that horrible addiction. It was quite obviously it was bad for me. But then there was, there were like a hundred other smokings that I've had in my life that I've had to quit or move on from or pivot away from in all aspects of life. And I think that a lot of people, if I can be arrogant about it, a lot of people just make say, make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And they mm. had to do with being honest with yourself about how you get away from that and saying, this isn't working. And it might be, this person isn't working. They're bad for me. I need to move on and I'll be alone and I'll be sad for a long time, but that's all right. Or it might be, this job is dog shit and these people are dickheads. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and you just got to be brave and say, actually, even if it means I'm going to be broke for a bit, like likelihood is in the, in, in the developed world, you're not going to starve. So, you know, you just start again and make it work. And, and if you come from a place of honesty, from what I've found, you'll usually be all right. Like, you yeah. know, I've been broken a couple of times and both times, honesty, like, saw me through it, um, you know, mm. on a personal level. Yeah. Before we move on to play Millennial Minesweeper, I just wanted to touch on the story that you told me about your boss when um, you said that you were leaving. Mm. Um and what happened to him subsequently. I just wondered if you could tell that story. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I said I, I'd been there. It was all a bit, I'd been at this political risk consultancy for a long time. I went and spoke to him and said I was leaving. And he was like, cause I was leaving to go to, move to Australia to do a startup, to move to Melbourne, Australia, to do a startup. And it, it was a city I'd never been before. And it was a big punt. Like I was just going with my own money. Um, and he entered a group super cool and supported, supportive of me, but like it was still a gamble for all of us. And I'd, you know, staked a lot on it. And I had, I had a like burgeoning career in London as well. So they're like, what are you doing? And he was very doubtful and kind of tried to sort me out of it. And I just, you know, I was, and he was, but he said, like, I can see you've kind of made your mind up. And I'm like, you're damn right. I'm going. Like, I've given you for my five, five years. That's what you got. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this. And he was like, well, you know, and they offered me a bit more dough and there was a bit back and forth, but ultimately, I just, you know, I kind of left and, and that was that. Mm. And then a couple of months later, I found out that the guy was dead. And, and he was he was like a senior guy there. And he he was he'd worked his way up. He'd stayed in the UK, worked his way up and done like tip the box, gone through some things. And he always talks about his pension and he loved his cars. And he basically he was just about coming up for retirement and he was going to um, jack it in and drive around Europe in his cars that he'd been kind of collecting on the way. 
but he, he basically had a very bad uh, like brain tumor or something, something like wrong with, with his brain. It's meant that he had a horrible descent as well, where he's very embittered about like, I've dedicated my whole life to this pension and these cars. And then now I can't even do them. And he was very angry at everyone about it. And I read his, read this obituary about him, which, which kind of explained this and then said, but he was a good man, but uh, leaves behind the family and all the rest of it. Mm. And it just, yeah. And, and, it, and I, I didn't feel like vindicated or anything. I just thought like, fuck, see, that's like, none of this is for granted you drop down dead because something's wrong with your brain and you didn't even know about it, and then that's that yeah you know? and so yeah. i think you've got to take a punt you know you've got to mm. you've got to be brave because you don't get you don't get another shot which sounds like every old part that ever lived right but it's like but it's so true and yeah. i think that there is definitely a balance to be struck between preparing for your future but also not compromising the present um and I find that such a hard balance to strike. And I'm curious as to whether you think that you have a good balance of that now. I mean, no, I don't, right? Like the only time I've been able to probably get my shit together is when I, you're literally not allowed to go anywhere, right? <laughs> like, I, they, they, without the pandemic, like I wouldn't be able to do the job I'm doing right now, I don't think in many ways, because it's like, you've got to be structured. I've run my own companies before, so I've shopped from the hip a lot more. This one's a bit more, mm-hmm. we're a charity, we're doing the right thing, but you've got to be a bit more kind of structured and that's like lockdown there's literally nothing else going on um Mm. i think that the important thing with that is because i think about it a lot like it's good to have goals on the one hand but on the other hand live for the moment la-di-da so how do you like reconcile those two things that are in opposition in many ways Mm. i think you just look at it on a timeline like when you do when you do investment right you at the beginning of the, at the beginning of your investment into a pension for example they get say your risk profile is quite high because you've got more time to make up for it and equally with your life and your career, like you can take a lot more risk and you should be taking a lot of risk. And if you're not taking risk, you're not going to luck out or hit a jackpot earlier in, the, in your career. Um, and then as time goes on, then you start being a bit more conservative because you've got less time to muck about. But then also the second thing is I think it's good. It's really I didn't start setting goals properly, five year goals and stuff like that until um my late 20s and I wish I'd started doing it earlier and being a bit more specific which is hard because it's like oh but I don't know what to do but it's like mm-hmm. well you give it a locale like I want to be in this country speaking this language doing something in this creative area by x date and then mm-hmm. do it that way around and then from but before you do all of that you need to do the kind of the why bit which is uh Simon Sinek's talk on find your why basically just sums it up and how to do it better is it's like and do that for yourself um and if you can do that well and really like identify actually these are the things that make me tick this is why I'm getting out of bed in the morning this is why I want to do that and tie that very closely to your goals I think you can just do that reset every five years um anyway that's what I like that's that's as far as I've got I mean am I nailing it no do I like understand all of this stuff no but like I wish I'd known that 10 years ago I wish I'd actually I wish I'd known that at the beginning of my 20s 18 years ago now so yeah (laughs) Thanks, Lewis. Cool. We're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. So I'm just going to read out some quotes and facts, and they're all about life. Some of them about your 20s, but not all of them, just in general. Mm. Um, so our first one is, time isn't precarious at all because it is an illusion. What you perceive as precious is not time, but the one point that is out of time, the now. It's and that is by... Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart's in, way, right? yeah. yeah, in The Power of Now, which I'm reading at the moment. Absolutely love that book. The Power of Now is a lovely book. I recommend it to everybody. It got me through that darkest period ever. 
Uh, that book, someone gave it to me at that time when I, with my divorce or rest of it, uh, the clusterfuck as I, uh, refer to that time. <laughs> and, and yeah, it, it, it's gold. Like it is a very good starting point. If you're like lost and, and bewildered, that's where to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the concept of time dictates so much of our lives and I struggle with it because the way we distinguish it, there are certain times in our life to be doing certain things. Um, it's sort of a problem I almost have with this twenties podcast because, you know, everyone can say their experiences, but like n- no one should be able to tell you what time of your life is the best to do something. I don't, I don't believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it, we're, everyone's on a different journey, uh, yeah. all of that, but, but no, but there are like at that, at that same time, I think the, the ability to understand and manage time and manage yourself to it, manage time, not control it, but manage like your time. And except mm. that you can't control time anyway. And so even in like when it first happened, when the clusterfuck first happened, and when I, oh, when it first kicked off, I just sat in a car counting away the seconds because I knew that each second got me further away from what had happened. And that oh. was the beginning, right? It was that like desperate. And then over time, it's, and now it's like been years. I didn't like never think about it. And I have a much better kind of more rewarding life than I did back then. But so it's weird because I would have, if you'd asked me at that time, is that possible? I would have said, absolutely not. It would ne- I'll never get back to that. I'll never be happy again. It's impossible. Like, you can't. Because uh, I was, you know, heartbroken and bankrupt, <laughs> basically. But, but but now, like, I look back and it's like, wow, like, time isn't magical because it like, made that happen. And so mm. I think and I think to acknowledge that, but then also to do it on the flip side. So, like, now I'm pretty happy and things are going pretty well. But I could drop, drop down there with a brain tumour, right? Mm. And so to acknowledge that, that you get these peaks and valleys, but in the peaks you've got a... Uh, you know take like appreciate it but also stack your chips and then in the valleys you've got to make plans for when you've got another peak and make sure how you can sustain that peak you know mm-hmm. um and that's what i'm better at now than i was back in the day when it's like if i had money in my pocket it was getting blown and if <laughs> i was and it, you know if i if i didn't have any then i was getting sad so yeah <laughs> nice our second one is a study found that those who married between ages 22 and 25 had the greatest likelihood of an intact marriage of the highest quality. <laughs> I thought was very interesting. And this is from an article called Eight Reasons Why Getting Married Young is Worth It, published in 2016. I would love to know what this study is because they didn't cite it, but I, it, it reminded me of something that you said in your note, which was... Um, you said at 38, I realise I have been at least six entirely different people. Um, and for me, it's like, how how can you get with someone in your early 20s and marry them? And you would have to change at the same time. Like, I think it's, I, I don't know. I don't wonder what I thought of it. The, the thing about it is, is there's been so much time go by that it, we forget that these things are kind of abstractions and like that they are not concrete and we try and make like marriage concrete or like solid by saying here's a diamond the hardest thing we know have a diamond which never dies or the rest of it but as i found out quite you know within a space of a few weeks like marriage is just like made up you can just you can just like and if you're super religious then fine but i'm not religious so why do i care about like you know a god that i don't believe in blessing a thing that ended up being dog shit it is like it didn't mm-hmm. and but we buy like we have the all accoutrements because you i think it's because you want to feel whole right we try and fill these holes and so you want you feel like if i can just tick that box i mean that quotes to me you know the tolo one that quote to me does not uh resonate 
as much as the Tolle one does resonate because it's mm. like if you like you, uh, it's fine for people to get married I'm not judging that and it's fine for people to be religious too but what's not fine is when people feel empty because they haven't done x y and z on the journey mm-hmm. of life by a certain date that mm-hmm. just seems like it's just it seems like it's designed to make people to control people and make them feel sad um yeah 100 yeah. 100 and that there is a massive thing about that around marriage especially if you're getting to 30 and it's like oh my friends are settling down and i haven't got married yet and i just think that that is so constructed and it makes you feel unworthy and it's so unnecessary dude i mean that's basically where i was at as well when i got married like i had pressure from uh, other sources like oh you should get married you're like that's a good thing everyone's doing it my friends have all done it and you just kind of feel you start approaching totally like oh my God, I'm going to get married. And like, like, no, you don't. And like, if anything, you are, if, if you're completely on it, then fine. But if anything, you are limiting your choices and narrowing your horizons by doing it earlier than you should. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that is a real risk because then you wake up bored at 50, realizing your life's passed you by well, the majority of it anyway. So mm-hmm. it's like, you've got to be careful. Yeah, for sure. Okay, our final one is... We may seek a fortune for no greater reason than to secure the respect and attention of people who would otherwise look straight through us. Oh, I like that one. Who is that? Yeah, that's Alan de Botton, who Alan is de Botton, a, a philosopher. Yeah. Philosopher, so, yeah. Um, yeah, he's yeah he's on the money de Botton. I like him a lot. Um, and he says he's like, his his favorite quote is actually if you if you uh, I'm going to butcher it, but it's along these lines. If you are, you should always be embarrassed of, of yourself a year ago, right? Yeah. And if you're not embarrassed of, your, of yourself from one year ago, you're not growing. And I think that mm-hmm. like that's on the money in terms of you've got to put yourself out there and do stuff you think this could be really awkward and embarrassing. And like the not doing that, the conservatism we have, particularly now mm-hmm. where we're like, we need new structures, we need new models, we need way, new ways of living. We need to be a lot better about equality and the environment as to two prime examples. And until we've like, we need to think our way out of these kind of crap paradigms that haven't served us anymore. So, yeah, I like that quote. I think he's on the money. And um, yeah, I'm glad that you, that you, that was the last one. No. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lewis, for coming on the 20 Not Something podcast. It's been really lovely to chat to you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you guys at home enjoyed this episode. Your continued support and engagement is honestly what keeps this podcast going. So a big thank you from me for all of your kind messages and comments on the series so far. It really does mean a lot. On that note, if you did enjoy this episode, then feel free to leave us a review on iTunes and you can follow us on Instagram at 20 Not Something as well. This podcast wouldn't sound as slick as it does without our wonderful composer and producer, Pete Haff. So a big shout out to Pete and we'll be back again again next week with another brilliant guest so i'll see you very soon